Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, your multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. A lot of hoops to talk about tonight and whatever else I might have up my sleeve on episode three of The Bridge. Well, a ton of stuff to get into tonight regarding March Madness. Take a look at your bracket. Tell me how you're doing. Raise your hand if you're in good shape and lower it to the floor if things could be a little bit better as far as your bracket is concerned. Myself, I have two teams left out of four. Not really the way I would have liked to see things go. Two of those teams I had originally in the Final Four, my gut picks, and I ended up changing them, which we'll get to a little bit later in the show. But some things I wanted to start off with that I didn't get to last week. We had a ton of games to talk about in those first four days, getting to the end of the round of 32, so I didn't get to a couple other things that were happening across the sports world that i like to start with now and get those off the plate. Take a little trip to the NBA. Last weekend, Steve Nash, one of the best point guards to ever play the game, coming out of Canada, probably one of the best Canadian players as well to ever play the game, announced that he would be retiring from the game of basketball. Now, some of you might remember Steve Nash as the biggest thief that the Los Angeles Lakers have had to deal with in the past couple seasons, not named Kobe Bryant. He signed a three-year deal in L.A. worth $28 million, and out of those possible 164 games he could have played for the Lakers, he played in 65 of them. So not quite Greg Oden or Derrick Rose-esque of failure, but his expectations were set pretty high when he came over to L.A. from Phoenix, and he really never ended up doing anything with the team Even though the team didn't look too good when he came to it, he was expected to kind of bring the fervor back to the sports world in L.A. basketball, and it really never happened. He broke his leg, he had back problems, his spine was out of whack, his nerves were shot. He was just getting old real fast, and he was gone before you could even really blink your eye. He did have a nice documentary, though, done by, I think, Grantland, followed him around for three different episodes about his supposed return comeback and how hard he was working, but it really didn't do anything for Steve. You may also remember him from that Nelly Furtado slash Timbaland hit, Permiscuous Girl, where she references being MVP like Steve Nash. Could have picked a thousand other players for that, but she went with Steve Nash, who does have two MVP awards. He won them in, I believe, 2005 and 2006. And he also is the third most in assists in NBA history and is number one in free throw percentage accuracy. I think he ended his career around 91% from the line, which is just unheard of. He was also an eight-time All-Star But he doesn't have a ring, so he's in that list of stars that are going to definitely make the Hall of Fame or have already made the Hall of Fame but do not have a ring 
such as Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, John Stockton, Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Alan Houston. Sorry, Knicks fans went a little overboard there. Also in NBA news, Kevin Durant decided that he was going to have surgery on his foot again. He's going to be out at least four to six months until he could even think about returning to basketball activities. He's going to undergo a bone graft procedure, which is something that happens if you're one of the five to eight percent of people that don't recover quickly enough when you have a Jones fracture and have the surgery on that. He came back a couple times throughout the season after missing 17 games. He was in and out of the lineup. He did a minor surgery around the All-Star break. He was a little sore. It wasn't healing right. He just decided that he was going to go for the bone graft and hopefully be back at some point next season. This coming on a Thunder team that is clinging and trying to hold on to the eighth seed in the West to get into the playoffs. They've been killed with injuries this year. Russell Westbrook has really just had to step up for them and put himself into the limelight as an MVP candidate throughout it. But I'm not sure if they're going to be able to make a run without one of the best NBA players in the league, probably the second best player in the league in Kevin Durant. Little segue with Kevin Durant. We move over to his old college basketball team to Texas. As we mentioned, Rick Barnes could be up on the firing block when his team was bounced early in the tournament and the round of 32 again, and he was indeed fired after 17 seasons as the Texas head basketball coach. The decision supposedly was mutual, and I hold up air quotes for that because you hear that all the time when the decision is quote-unquote mutual, when it's really just probably the administration sitting his ass down and telling him, you know what, have a good one. Is that okay with you? Yeah, you knew it. All right, see you, Rick. So no one really knows who they're going to go after, but that's a pretty prestigious coaching position. Wichita State's head coach might be up for that offer, even though he just said last week that he'd be good to continue that program at Wichita State. But they all say that, of course. Also getting fired or let go mutually was Steve Lavin over at St. John's. He stepped down or was fired. It was told to just uh, leave the door open on his way out, however you want to word it. And... St. John's is in a predicament where they can either go with a younger guy to kind of take over their program, but they're also considering going with a former alum, Chris Mullen, who was a five-time All-Star, I believe, in the NBA and took them to the Final Four, I want to say in 1984 or 1985. It might help to get his name on the roster list to help bring in some recruits and get St. John's back up to where it could be as far as stature is concerned and get the basketball back up at Madison Square Garden. What a dismal year so far, Madison Square Garden for basketball. St. John's, I mean, they made the tournament, yeah. They surrendered Coach K's 1,000 victory at home. The Knicks... What more can be said about them? Poor play all around at the Garden this year when it involves the New York teams. We also have an in-memoriam for Chuck Benarek, who passed away last week at 89. Goes by the nickname Concrete Charlie, and it wasn't hard to see why. He was one of those two-way players, probably one of the last great ones to do so. He played center and linebacker for the Eagles back in the late 40s, early 50s into 1962 and end up making the Hall of Fame 
1967. He only missed three games in 14 years, and he's been a great follower of the league since his retirement, often calling the players in the NFL soft for the way they substitute in and out and don't play some games and different things. And he's not really wrong. The league has gotten soft. The world has gotten soft, really, if you think about it. But there's a pretty famous picture of Chuck when the Eagles played the Giants in, I believe, 1960. And he leveled their running back, Frank Gifford, took him out. And Frank Gifford just lie on the ground, unconscious, really, gave him a concussion. And Frank Gifford didn't come back to play in the NFL for another two seasons after taking that hit. So that just goes to show you that Concrete Charlie was not a nickname that was undeserved. He has a lot of mangled, well, had a lot of mangled fingers on his hands from breaking his fingers throughout his career. But I bring up Chuck Bignarik because if you are a fan of autographs, he actually autographed through the mail pretty religiously. And if you send him a picture, he would most likely send you it back with his signature attached. And I sent him the picture of that iconic play that I mentioned of him standing over Frank Gifford, pumping his fist in the air, which he actually said was because on that play, you'd be surprised to find out, Frank Gifford fumbled the ball. The Eagles picked it up, so he was celebrating more so the fumble recovery and not from knocking Frank Gifford out. But he signed it, of course, Chuck Bignarik, 1949 to 1962, Hall of Fame, 67. And then right above Frank Gifford, lying on the bottom of the picture, he just wrote, Sorry, Frank? Question mark? And then above him giving the fist pump, he wrote, Thinking, game is over. All right, so moving on from all that news from last week, we can come into what happened over the past couple days in the men's NCAA basketball tournament. We started with the Sweet 16 on Thursday, and none of the four games were decided by fewer than seven points, which can kind of give people the idea that they weren't too exciting. Some of them were not. You know, we'll get to that Kentucky game, sweet Lord. But some of them were, and the final score, you know, with free throws and everything, kind of makes it seem like it was a little bit in one team's favor than it might have been, but we'll go over that as well. We started with Wisconsin as the one seed, squaring off against North Carolina, which was the four seed. The Badgers won 79-72, but North Carolina gave them a run for their money. They led at halftime, and they actually had a four-point lead with around seven minutes to play and shot 47% from the field. They made eight of 13 threes. But then the game kind of got out of North Carolina's grasp. The Badgers are just very good at closing out games, and they don't panic if they might be down. In the second half, they went 14 from 15 from the foul line, which is just amazing considering some of the performances we've seen throughout this tournament. Teams giving away the games late, not being able to convert on the foul line. The way that you win March Madness tournament games late in the tournament is knocking down your free throws, and they did just that and were able to hold off with the victory. North Carolina's offense just kind of sputtered toward the end, and Wisconsin just was clicking on all cylinders when it looked like they might be out of it, and they pulled out the win. That loss also snapped North Carolina's 11-game Sweet 16 winning streak, and Wisconsin improved to 33-0. and when leading with five minutes left to play and 116 and three over the last five years. 
the biggest beatdown we've seen so far in the tournament next to the maybe the 1 and 16 or 2 and 15 games was when Kentucky took on the fifth seeded West Virginia and demolished them 78-39. As Bomani Jones would say in reference to this game, beat them down. My goodness, this wasn't even close after basically the tip-off. And we entered into this game, Daxter Miles Jr., this freshman on West Virginia, said he expected Kentucky would be 36-1 and after playing them. He guaranteed victory, and basically he finished the game with zero points and one rebound. And then at the end of it, hid in the bathroom, hoping that the media wouldn't find him. And then when he did get interviewed, he just kept saying they played great. But if you're going to run your mouth, back it up, man. They just had nothing. The game was tied 2-2, and then Kentucky went on a 16-0 run to make it 18-2. At the half, it was 44-18. Kentucky hit 14 of its first 23 shots. The Mountaineers missed 21 of their first 26 shots, and then they didn't score for the first eight minutes of the second half. Riveting stuff. Kentucky doubles the score and just shows them, don't poke the bear, all right? Just leave them be. Go out and play your game, but my goodness, they showed the world that they mean business. And it just wasn't a game you needed to watch after probably the first five minutes. You could have just went right to sleep. Then we had Notre Dame, the third seed, playing Wichita State as the seventh seed. The Fighting Irish won that game 81-70. The Shockers entered the game as a two-point favorite, but that didn't last for long. Notre Dame rushed out to an 18-5 lead, and Wichita State played from behind basically the rest of the night. They did make things interesting at some points and got the score close. But then the Fighting Irish made 18 of its last 24 shots, shooting 75% to end a fast-paced second half and just put the game away. So unfortunately for Wichita State, you go from making the Final Four to that undefeated season last year to this year kind of getting a, a hard region to go through. Would have ended up playing Kentucky had they even won this game. So no love for the mid-major there and the Shockers go home. The final game of the night, Arizona and Xavier, the Wildcats as the two seed, were in a little bit of trouble against the Musketeers. They trailed for the majority of the second half, and it looked like Xavier was going to pull an upset. But the Wildcats finished the game 17 for 19 from the foul line. And as I mentioned, that's how you close out games. Xavier, on the other hand, 3 for 17 from the three-point arc. Couldn't get anything to fall to stay in the game late and end up going home, losing by 8. That moves us to Friday with UCLA trying to continue that Cinderella-esque story run after not really deserving to make the tournament. Ended up getting the Sweet 16 and ran into the two-seed in Gonzaga and lost 74-62. Both teams really struggled from the field early, but Gonzaga had the lead by seven at the break. UCLA cut it to one to start the half, but the Zags put together a 12-0 run and eventually led by 16 with eight minutes left. UCLA, on the other hand, didn't even hit a three till about two and a half minutes were left in the game. Even though Gonzaga shot three for 19 from three, their big men really dominated down low. And they moved them on to the Elite Eight for the first time since 1999, back when they were one of those huge Cinderella teams trying to make a run. 
We had an ACC tilt with eight seeded NC State taking on the fourth seed in Louisville. Louisville comes out on top, 75-65. This was a back-and-forth game, as you would expect it to be with two ACC rivals. But the Cardinals started taking control with about three minutes to go. They went on a 9-0 run and put the game away to advance to the Elite Eight. We had Michigan State and Oklahoma, a seven versus three seed in a close one. The Spartans come away with a 62-58 win. They didn't lead until 10 minutes were left in the game. Neither team was really able to get a consistent flow going with their offense, but Michigan State ends up holding on. They had nine threes in the game. Oklahoma only had four, and those 15 points probably made the biggest difference in the game. Then we had the last one seed playing in Duke versus number five ranked Utah. Duke holds on to win 63-57. They held Utah to 32.7% shooting and two for 10 from behind the arc. Both teams started the game really poorly as far as the offense was concerned. Overall, Duke's big man, Jaleel Okafor, didn't really do much against the two big seven-footers on Utah's squad. Only finished with six points. But the rest of Duke was really able to step up and their defensive effort was off the charts in holding Utah to just 57 points. Now, a fun fact for this game, for all you betters out there, the spread coming into this game was five and a half points. So Utah was getting five and a half against the number one team in Duke. The line switched a little bit as the game got closer. I think if you hit it late, it went down to four and a half. But to make a long story short... Duke is up five with about 10 seconds left in the game and Utah misses and Duke senior Quinn Cook gets the rebound. Now you're thinking logically that Utah is automatically going to follow and put him at the free throw line with a chance to go up by seven or maybe he'll miss a couple and Utah can get one of those cheap layup baskets to end the game. And the final score will show that, and they would have covered. Now, I'm listening to this game on the radio, and I hear he gets the rebound, and I'm just waiting for them to announce the foul, and it doesn't come. The announcers are going crazy because Utah's just letting him kind of cup the ball and wrap it around his stomach and hold on to it. And the game ends. You hear the whistle blow. The announcers are doing their thing, saying that Duke won. The coaches are shaking hands. The players are getting in the handshake line. And I'm a little disappointed because I had the five and a half line in Duke's favor, thinking that they'd win by six. So I turn back over on Sirius XM Radio to Scott Wetzel's show. Shout out, Scott. You can follow him on Twitter at Opposite Picks. And he's he's a big Vegas guy. I don't know if he had anything down in the game, but he likes to keep you up to date on what's going on as far as those types of things are concerned. And he's talking about the game and just starts saying, you know, the refs are still on the floor. Are they going to put more time back on the clock? The refs get together, they go to the booth, they review the play and decide that a foul is called with 0.7 seconds left in the game. So Duke is, is finishing up his celebrations. They stop that. They call the Utah players. Some of them had already gone to the locker room. They call them back to come back onto the floor for Quinn Cook to shoot two foul shots with Duke up five. So if you had Duke or Utah at five, you're good with a push, but now things are going to change, you would think, with Quinn Cook at the foul line at about 89% 
free throw percentage. He misses the first free throw, and you think, oh, God, this is the chance I need, and he missed it. He ends up making the second free throw, puts Tuca head up by six, and they cover the five, the five and a half, whatever he had it. They win by six, 63-57. If the refs didn't have money on that game, I would be incredibly surprised for them to take the players back out of the locker room just for two meaningless free throws is beyond me. All right, so we move to Saturday's games. These Elite Eight games were absolutely fantastic. Every one of them was a great basketball game on both Saturday and Sunday, and you couldn't have asked for a better way to finish out those round of games heading into the Final Four. First up was Wisconsin-Arizona, the one versus two. The Badgers win this game 85-78. Wisconsin wins the West. They reach the Final Four for the second straight year. And Arizona, on the other hand, loses that big rematch that they've been talking about all week. They got bounced by Wisconsin last year in the Elite Eight by one. Now, Arizona shot 54% in the first half. They led by three. Then Wisconsin comes out, opens up the second half on a 14-3 run, and they just really didn't look back from there. They shot 12 from 18 from three on the game, and Arizona made only two threes. And it was just another example of them being able to close out a game and Bo Ryan and the Wisconsin Badgers move back to the Final Four. Their opponent would be either Notre Dame or Kentucky. Kentucky, obviously, the number one seed coming into the game, 37-0. Going up against the third seed in Notre Dame, who a lot of people thought would have another disappointing run but were proved wrong when Notre Dame got to the Elite Eight. They stayed with Kentucky for about 38 minutes, but end up coming short, losing 68-66. Notre Dame controlled the tempo for most of the game, really. They led by six in the second half with about four minutes and 30 seconds left. They had a four-point lead, but didn't score until 2.30 was left to play in the game, and Kentucky was able to get back to within striking distance and tie the game with 114 left, they tied it again on a Carl Anthony Towns bucket. Then on Notre Dame's late possession, they run the shot clock down to about three or two seconds left before they throw up a shot. That gets blocked. They end up putting one second left back on the shot clock. Notre Dame calls a timeout to draw up a play for that, and they end up getting a shot clock violation, which was actually their first turnover of the entire half. So they were able to hold on to the ball and keep that lead Unfortunately, they had no timeouts left at the end of the game, which ended up hurting them because Kentucky gets the ball with around 14 seconds left. They end up going for a quick two and get fouled on the play. Harrison heads to the free throw line and makes two free throws with six seconds left. So then Jerrion Grant on Notre Dame takes the inbound with six seconds left. Would have been a great time for Notre Dame to call a timeout, but Mike Bray had used them all. So he drives down the length of the floor, and everybody and their brother on Kentucky is guarding this kid while he's dribbling. He has three people guarding him, one of them being a seven-footer. So he tries to move away from them by dribbling the ball into the corner, which is probably the worst place you want to be. He double clutches, happens to avoid two block shot attempts, and heaves the ball for a three and the game winner, but overshoots the rim, and the game ends. To get the final call of, oh, he just misses, which was reminiscent of the Butler-Duke game in 2010 of 
It almost went in. It almost went in. Well, almost isn't going to get the job done. And it wasn't too great of a shot. I thought he might have tried to drive to the basket, maybe pick up a foul, or when driving, dish it out for a three-pointer and try to go for the win that way. But alas, that was the game's final shot. And Kentucky keeps its undefeated streak alive and moves on to the final four. So the Wisconsin-Kentucky matchup was set. We move on to Sunday to see who would be playing the other two games of the final four, starting with Michigan State squaring off against Louisville. This was a great battle. Tom Izzo, Michigan State, Rick Pitino at Louisville. They always go at it, and they have a great track record of being in these situations deep into the tournament. Michigan State ends up taking the win 76-70 in overtime to advance to the Final Four as a seven seed, trying to get a little bit of that UConn magic from last year. We went into halftime with Louisville up by eight, and the Cardinals had won 94 straight games when they were up by six or more at the half. So it appeared that things were in their favor, but they opened up the second half missing 17 of their first 20 shots over 13 minutes and ended up shooting 19% in the second half, which just isn't going to get things done. So Michigan State was able to battle back. The game was obviously close, ended up in overtime. Louisville actually had the opportunity to take the lead. They were at the free throw line with five or six seconds left, only was able to make one shot and missed the second. The Michigan State heave from half court hit the backboard. And then in overtime, they were able to take control and ended up getting that six-point win. Tom Izzo is back to his seventh Final Four. And what's funny about this team, and just goes to show you the grit that they've had in this tournament in particular, is that they've now tied their longest winning streak of the season at four games. So that just goes to show you how their season has been up until this point, having 11 losses throughout the year. So Michigan State moves on. Who would they play? We had Duke as the one seed playing Gonzaga, the two seed. And Duke moves on to the Final Four in Indianapolis with a 66-52 win over the Zags. Duke was down four with about 15 minutes left in the game. But from that point on, they allowed only 14 points the rest of the way. So it goes to show you that Duke's defense has come along quite a bit of late. And these past two games in particular, they've really cracked down on the defensive end, a place where they've struggled severely in the regular season. Gonzaga did have a chance to tie things up with four minutes left. They had a wide open layup to tie the game and the guy missed it. Duke then went on a 13 to one run to finish the game. They also had just three turnovers for the entire game, were able to hold on to the ball pretty flawlessly. One of those turnovers was actually on purpose. So if you want to say they had two, that's fine by me. Gonzaga, on the other hand, had 11 turnovers in the game. So Coach K is off to his 12th Final Four, which is tied for the most all-time with UCLA great, the Wizard of Woodbury, John Wooden. And he's back to the Final Four for the first time since 2010 when Duke went on to win the national championship. For the Zags, they miss out on getting to their first Final Four in program history, and unfortunately another year to get over that hump of not being just a Cinderella team comes to an end. 
So now we know who will be in the final four. We have Kentucky versus Wisconsin and Michigan State versus Duke. You just couldn't ask for a better ending to this tournament to get these four specific teams to get to this final four. I mean, upsets are great and everything, but when push comes to shove, you want the best playing the best. And I think we definitely have that in this year's final four. You've got four future Hall of Fame coaches with Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, Tom Izzo at Michigan State, John Calipari at Kentucky, and Bo Ryan at Wisconsin. Three number one seeds in the tournament. There's going to be several top picks in the NBA draft when that comes around. You've got one team undefeated. You just couldn't ask for better storylines heading into next weekend. Duke is going to be the first game on Saturday, followed by Kentucky, and they will play the national championship game on Monday night. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show about my bracket. When I originally was filling this out, I had Wisconsin going to the Final Four. Even though they had lost to Duke earlier in the season, they had played very well up until that point and after that point. They win the Big Ten, which supposedly had a down year this year, even though two of its teams have made the Final Four. So shout out to Big Ten Nation, I guess. But the experts and the wise wisdomers of the four-letter network and others were really high on Arizona, saying that they were probably the team that could beat Kentucky and knock them out of their undefeated season. And I said, you know, that might be going against the grain, which is one of the things you might want to do when you're filling out your bracket is pick that upset or go against what everyone else is doing so it will help you in the long run. So I said, well, it's one game. I'll go with Arizona. But I wanted Wisconsin. On the other side of the bracket, when I started filling it out and looking at how teams had played, I thought Michigan State was worthy of getting to the Final Four. They had 11 losses, and I think at least five or six of them were in overtime. So they were losing, yes. They had 11 losses, but they weren't bad losses, and they almost beat Wisconsin, should have beaten Wisconsin, really, in the Big Ten championship game. But a friend of mine who will go nameless on this podcast until I eventually have him on as one of the co-hosts for this show to get his take on whatever we might be talking about, and I could rip him mercilessly on air for it, said that I was a fool for thinking that Michigan State could get to the Final Four. So against my better judgment, I removed them from the Final Four. I had them losing this game to Villanova, and Villanova would have gotten into the Final Four. But as we know, Villanova but as we know, Villanova didn't show up to this year's tournament and were knocked out in the second round. So I should have went with my gut. And that's a little note for all you kids listening out there. Go with your gut, kids. When you're making decisions in life, go with your gut. Don't let a friend tell you otherwise. But regardless, we have Michigan State playing Duke. As I mentioned, Michigan State went 27 and 11. Duke is currently 33 and 4. Duke actually did beat Michigan State earlier this year. They played in November and Duke won 81-71 and they also played that game in Indianapolis. So it'll be a rematch game for the two teams. Michigan State, on the other hand, has beaten a 2-3-4 and four seed so far in the tournament. So they're definitely hot at the right time and could certainly pose some problems for Duke. Now what Michigan State probably needs to do to try and take down the Blue Devils is to be able to contain on their defensive side of the basketball. Jaleel Okafor is probably the best big man in the NCAA at this point. 
and he's going to be going up against a smaller defender this time. He really didn't do much his last two games against seven-footers, but this game he'll be against a smaller lineup. They just can't allow him to establish post position. He likes to get the ball deep into the post, but when double teams come, he's sometimes very slow in his decision-making. As far as getting rid of the ball to the open guy, he'll often dribble it out to the three-point line and dribble it around and look around for people. Not too quick with the ball movement, which I think is key. If a double team comes, you need to be able to pass the ball quickly to find the open man. And if you do that, the defense will have to recover, and you're bound to get an open shot somewhere. Michigan State has kind of an older lineup. Duke, as you know, is more freshman-oriented with Tyus Jones, Okafor, obviously, and Justice Winslow, who's had two amazing games playing in his hometown of Houston and has really carried Duke in their past two wins in this tournament. So you kind of know what you're going to expect as far as Duke is concerned. You're going to have Jaleel Okafor down low. Quinn Cook and Tyus Jones at the guard positions will probably give you a solid game. And Justice Winslow has really come on strong in this tournament. The question that the tournament usually begs, though, is which player is going to step up in the big moment that may not be one of your more elite players, whether that be someone off the bench or someone in the starting lineup that might not necessarily score 20 points a game or grab 10 boards. You need someone else to step up in the clutch. So if Jaleel Okafor is held down on Duke's end and guards Quinn Cook and Tyus Jones aren't necessarily shooting the ball well, who's going to be that next guy to step up and take over for them and give them enough solid minutes to get them to advance to the championship game? It's going to be a great battle. Two great coaches going up against each other. It's probably going to be a close game. The way things have been going, you would think it might be a little high scoring, but Duke's defense has led to a couple of defensive-oriented games in the last two. So the defense will probably play a huge role in this game as to whether or not Michigan State can keep it close and have a strong night shooting to take down Duke. On the other side, we have the two number one teams, Wisconsin, who's 35-3, and against Kentucky, who, as I mentioned, 38-0. Wisconsin will be playing in a rematch game against Kentucky. They made it to the Final Four last year, came up short against the Wildcats by one point. So you know that's left a sour taste in their mouth, and they're looking to get revenge. Now, it's obviously not necessarily the same lineup that Kentucky put out last year with so many one-and-dones that they've had, but they are returning several players that played in that game last year. And Wisconsin, obviously, has several seniors who are looking to get revenge, two of which are Frank Kaminsky and Sam Decker at 7 foot and 6'9", respectively. And Sam Decker just dropped 23 and 27 points in the last two games, both back-to-back career highs. Both can shoot from the outside. Frank Kaminsky kind of has that Dirk Nowitzki-type jumper-slash-three-point shot. Very difficult to defend him since he's so good both inside and outside. Kentucky, of course, features big men of its own. Carl Anthony Towns, Willie Cauley-Stein. I don't know if you're around seven feet and play for Kentucky that you have to have three names when you're announced on the roster, but apparently that might be a prerequisite. They have the Harrison Twins as well and a long list of others that just give them great depth to their lineup. And all these guys provide length. Those long arms in the paint, disrupting passing lanes, 
getting in your face. That's why their defense has been the best in college this year. But Wisconsin does have a good shot against this Kentucky lineup. Unfortunately for them, Kentucky might not shoot as poorly or play as poorly as they did against Notre Dame. And Wisconsin might not shoot as well as they did when they ended the second half against Arizona. So if you take both those games and the exact same thing happens this Saturday, you would give the edge to Wisconsin just based on how well they were able to shoot in the second half. And as I mentioned, how great they are at closing out games. Kentucky is also very good at closing out games, especially from the foul line. But if their big guys get into foul trouble, especially with Wisconsin having bigs of its own, that might pose some problems for John Calipari. And he's a guy that loves substituting in and out when someone makes a mistake. You know, an opponent will score against them and he'll just bark down the bench, get him out, get him out of there. So he'll have no problem taking his players and substituting in and out to get in the right lineup. But if there is foul trouble, especially with their three named athletes, They might be in some trouble against Wisconsin, but expect two great basketball games on Saturday. And regardless of outcome, we're going to be in for a fantastic national championship game on Monday. So that's going to do it here for the bridge. I hope you enjoyed listening and I really hope you've enjoyed these past couple days of basketball because we've had some thrillers in the sweet 16 and elite eight. And it appears we're going to be in for an equally exciting final four next week. For more information on today's podcast, you could check out www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter by the same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You could also find The Bridge on SoundCloud and on Stitcher in case you might have those apps and it might be a little bit more handy for you to listen to them through there. Next week, I'll be back with a rundown over Saturday's games and a preview with what's to come on Monday night in the national championship. And I'll also cover the rest of the week here on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.